Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 1 Etymology Supplied by a late consumptive usher to a grammar school. The pale usher, threadbare in coat, heart, body, and brain. I see him now. He was ever dusting his old lexicons and grammars with a queer handkerchief, mockingly embellished with all the gay flags of all the known nations of the world. He loved to dust his old grammars. It somehow mildly reminded him of his mortality. While you take in hand to school others, and to teach them by what name a whalefish is to be called in our tongue, leaving out, through ignorance, the letter H, which almost alone maketh up the significance of the word, you deliver that which is not true. Hakliot. Whale. From Swedish and Danish, Haval. This animal is named from roundness or rolling, for in Danish, Havalt is arched or vaulted. Webster's Dictionary. Whale. It is more immediately from the Dutch and German wallen, A.S. Wall-in, to roll or to wallow. Richardson's Dictionary. There follows below a list of synonyms for whale, some of which I cannot pronounce, including the Hebrew and Greek. However, there is cetus, which is Latin, huel, Anglo-Saxon, huvalt, Danish, wall, Dutch, hual, Swedish, volur, Icelandic, whale, English, belin, French, belena, Spanish, piki nui nui, Fiji, and fihi nui nui, Eromenogian. Apologies for those pronunciations. <clears throat> Extracts supplied by a sub-sub-librarian. It will be seen that this mere painstaking burrower and grubworm of a poor devil of a sub-sub appears to have gone through the long vaticans and street stalls of the earth, picking up whatever random allusions to whales he could always find in any book whatsoever, sacred or profane. Therefore, you must not, in every case at least, Take the higgledy-piggledy whale statements, however authentic, in these extracts for veritable gospel cetology. Far from it. As touching the ancient authors generally, as well as the poets here appearing, these extracts are solely valuable or entertaining as affording a glancing bird's-eye view of what has been promiscuously said, thought, fancied, and sung of Leviathan by many nations and generations including our own. So fare thee well, poor devil of a sub-sub, whose commentator I am. 
Thou belongest to what hopeless, sallow tribe which no wine of this world would ever warm, and for whom even pale sherry would be too rosy strong, but with whom one sometimes loves to sit and feel poor devilish, too, and grow convivial upon tears and say to them bluntly, with full eyes and empty glasses and in not altogether unpleasant sadness, Give it up, sub-subs! For by how much more the pains ye take to please the world, by so much more shall ye ever go thankless. <laughs> Would that I could clear out Hampton Court and the Tulares for ye. But gulp down your tears and high aloft to the royal mast with your hearts, for your friends who have gone before you are clearing out the seven-storied heavens and making refugees of long-pampered Gabriel, Michael, and Raphael against your coming. Here ye strike, but splintered hearts together. There ye shall strike unsplinterable glasses. Extracts. And God created great whales. Genesis. Leviathan maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Job. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. The Book of Psalms. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Isaiah. And that thing soever besides cometh within the chaos of this monster's mouth, be it beast, boat, or stone, down it goes all incontinently, that foul great swallow of his, and perisheth in the bottomless gulf of his paunch. Holland's Plutarch's Morals The Indian Sea breedeth the most and biggest fishes that are, among which the whales and whirlpools called baleen, take up as much in length as four acres or arpens of land. Holland's Pliny Scarcely had we proceeded two days on the sea when about sunrise a great many whales and other monsters of the sea appeared. Among the former one was of a most monstrous size. This came towards us, open-mouthed, raising the waves on all sides and beating the sea before him into a foam. Took Lucian, the true history. He visited this country also with a view of catching horse whales, which had bones of very great value for their teeth, of which he brought some to our king. The best whales were catched in his own country, of which some were forty-eight and some fifty yards long. He said that he was one of six who had killed sixty in two days. Other, or others, verbal narrative taken down from his mouth by King Alfred, A.D. 890. And whereas all the other things, whether beast or vessel, that enter into the dreadful gulf of this monster's, that is the whale's, mouth, are immediately lost and swallowed up, the sea gudgeon retires into it in great security and there sleeps. Montaigne. Apology for Raymond Seabond. Let us fly! Let us fly! Old Nick take me if it is not Leviathan described by the noble prophet Moses in the life of patient Job. Rebellious. 
This whale's liver was two cartloads. Stowe's Annals. The great leviathan that maketh the seas to seethe like boiling pan. Lord Bacon's version of the Psalms. Touching that monstrous bulk, the whale, or orc, we have received nothing certain. They grow exceeding fat, insomuch that an incredible quantity of oil will be extracted out of one whale. Ibid. History of Life and Death. The sovereignest thing on earth is parmaceti, for an inward bruise. King Henry. Very like a whale. Hamlet. Which to secure no skill of le leech's art, mote him avail but to return again. To his wounds worker that with lowly dart, dinting his breast, had bred his restless pain, like as the wounded whale to shore flies through the main. The Fairy Queen. Immense as whales, the motion of whose vast bodies can in a peaceful calm trouble the ocean till it boil. Sir William Davenant, preface to Gondibert. What spermaceti is, men might justly doubt, since the learned Hosmanus, in his work of thirty years, saith plainly, Nescio quid sit. Sir T. Brown, of Sperma Seti and the Sperma Seti Whale. Vide his V.E. Like Spencer's talus with his modern flail, he threatens ruin with his ponderous tail. Their fixed javelins in his side he wears, and on his back a grove of pikes appears. Waller's Battle of the Summer Islands By art is created that great leviathan called a commonwealth or state, in Latin, civitas, which is but an artificial man. Opening sentence of Hobbes' Leviathan. Silly man-soul swallowed it without chewing, as if it had been sprat in the mouth of a whale. Pilgrim's Progress. The sea-beast, Leviathan, which God of all his works created hugest that swam the ocean stream. Paradise Lost. There, Leviathan, hugest of living creatures in the deep, stretched like a promontory sleeps or swims, and seems a moving land and at his gills draws in and at his breath spouts out a sea. Paradise Lost. The mighty whales which swim in a sea of water and have been a sea of oil swimming in them. Fuller's Profane and Holy State. So close behind some promontory lie the huge leviathan to attend their prey, and give no chance but swallow in the fry, which through their gaping jaws mistake the way. Dryden's Annus Mirabilis While the whale is floating at the stern of the ship, they cut off his head and tow it with the boat as near the shore as it will come, but it will be aground in twelve or thirteen feet water. Thomas Edges, Ten Voyages to Spitzbergen, in Perkis. In their way, they saw many whales sporting in the ocean and in wantonness fuzzing up the water through their pipes and vents, which nature has placed on their shoulders. Sir T. Herbert's Voyages into Asia and Africa, Harris Collected. 
Here they saw such huge troops of whales that they were forced to proceed with a great deal of caution for fear they should run their ship upon them. Scouten's Sixth Circumnavigation We set sail from Elba, wind northeast in the ship called the Jonas in the Whale. Some say the whale can't open his mouth, but that is a fable. They frequently climb up the mast to see whether they can see a whale, for the first discoverer has a ducat for his pains. I was told of a whale taken near Shetland that had above a barrel of herrings in his belly. One of our harpooners told me that he had caught once a whale in Spitsbergen that was white all over. A Voyage to Greenland, A.D. 1671. Harris Call. Several whales have come in upon this coast, Fife, anno 1652. One, 80 feet in length, of the whalebone kind came in, which as I was informed, besides a vast quantity of oil, did afford five hundred weight of baleen. The jaws of it stand for a gate in the garden of Pitfarren. Sibbald's Fife and Kinross. Myself have agreed to try whether I can master and kill this sperma seti whale, for I could never hear of any of that sort that was killed by any man, such is his fierceness and swiftness. Richard Strafford's Letter to the Bermudas. Phil, translated, A.D. 1668. Whales in the sea, God's voice obey. New England Primer. We saw also abundance of large whales, there being more in those southern seas, as I may say, by a hundred to one than we have in the northward of us. Captain Cowley's Voyage Round the Globe, A.D. 1729. And the breath of the whale is frequently attended with such an insupportable smell as to bring on the disorder of the brain. Eula's South America. To fifty chosen sylphs of special note, we trust the important charge, the petticoat. Oft have we known that sevenfold fence to fail though stuffed with hoops and armed with ribs of whale. Rape of the Lock If we compare land animals in respect to magnitude with those that take up their abode in the deep, we shall find that they will appear contemptible in comparison. The whale is doubtless the largest animal in creation. Goldsmith, Natural History If you should write a fable for little fishes, you would make them speak like great whales. Goldsmith to Johnson. In the afternoon, we saw what we supposed to be a rock, but it was found to be a dead whale which some Asiatics had killed and were towing ashore. They seemed to endeavor to conceal themselves behind the whale in order to avoid being seen by us. Cook's Voyages. The larger whales, they seldom ventured to attack. They stand in so great dread of some of them that when out at sea they are afraid to mention even their names and carry dung, limestone, juniper wood, and some other articles of the same nature in their boats in order to terrify and prevent their too near approach. Uno von Troil's Letters on Banks and Solander's Voyage to Iceland, 1772. The spermaceti whale found by the Nantucketoy is an active, fierce animal and requires vast address and boldness in the fishermen. Thomas Jefferson's Whale Memorial to the French Minister in 1778. And pray, sir, what in the world is equal to it? 
Edmund Burke's reference in Parliament to the Nantucket whale fishery. Spain, a great whale stranded on the shores of Europe. Edmund Burke. Uh, somewhere. A tenth brace of the king's ordinary revenue, said to be grounded on the consideration of his guarding and protecting the seas from pirates and robbers, is the right to royal fish, which are whale and sturgeon, and these, when either thrown ashore or caught near the coast, are the property of the king. Blackstone. Soon to the sport of death the crews repair, Rodmond, unerring, o'er his head suspends, the barbed steel and every turn attends. Falconer's Shipwreck Bright shone the roofs, the domes, the spires, And rockets blew self-driven, To hang their momentary fire Around the vault of heaven. So fire with water to compare, The ocean serves on high, Unspouted by a whale in air, To express unwieldy joy. Cowper on the Queen's visit to London. Ten or fifteen gallons of blood are thrown out of the heart at a stroke with immense velocity. John Hunter's account of the dissection of a whale, a small-sized one. The aorta of a whale is larger in the bore than the main pipe of the waterworks at London Bridge, and the water roaring in its passage through that pipe is inferior in impetus and velocity to the blood gushing through the whale's heart. Pali's theology. The whale is a mammiferous animal without hind feet. Baron Cuvier. In 40 degrees south, we saw spermaceti whales, but did not take any till the 1st of May, the sea being then covered with them. Colnett's voyage for the purpose of extending the spermaceti whale fishery. In the free element beneath me swam floundered and dived in play, in chase, in battle. Fishes of every color, form, and kind, which language cannot paint, and mariner, had never seen, from dread leviathan to insect millions peopling every wave, gathered in shoals immense, like floating islands, led by mysterious instincts through that waste and trackless region, though on every side, assaulted by voracious enemies, Whales, sharks, and monsters armed in front or jaw, with swords, saws, spiral horns, or hooked fangs. Montgomery's World Before the Flood. Io, Payan, Io, sing! To the finny people's king, not a mightier whale than this in the vast Atlantic is, not a fatter fish than he flounders round the polar sea. Charles Lamb's Triumph of the Whale. In the year 1690, some persons were on a high hill observing the whales spouting and sporting with each other, when one observed, there, pointing to the sea, is a green pasture where our children's grandchildren will go for bread. Obed Macy's History of Nantucket. I built a great cottage for Susan and myself, and made a gateway in the form of a gothic arch by setting up a whale's jawbones. Hawthorne's Twice Told Tales. She came to bespeak a moment for her first love, who had been killed by a whale in the Pacific Ocean no less than forty years ago. Hawthorne's twice told tales. No, sir, tis a right whale, answered Tom. I saw his spout. He threw up a pair of as pretty rainbows as a Christian would wish to look at. 
He's a raw oil butt, that fellow. Cooper's pilot. The papers were brought in, and we saw in the Berlin Gazette that Wales had been introduced on the stage there. Eckerman's conversations with Goethe. My God, Mr. Chance, what's the matter? I answered. We have been stove by a whale. Narrative of the shipwreck of the whale ship Essex of Nantucket, which was attacked and finally destroyed by a large sperm whale in the Pacific Ocean, by Owen Chase of Nantucket, first mate of said vessel, New York, 1821. A mariner sat in the shrouds of one night. The wind was piping free. Now bright, now dimmed, was the moonlight pale, and the phosphor gleamed in the wake of the whale as it floundered in the sea. Elizabeth Oakes Smith The quantity of line withdrawn from the boats engaged in the capture of this one whale amounted altogether to 10,440 yards or nearly six English miles. Sometimes the whale shakes its tremendous tail in the air, which cracking like a whip resounds to the distance of three or four miles. Scoresby Mad with agonies, he endures from these fresh attacks. The infuriated sperm whale rolls over and over. He rears his enormous head and with wide expanding jaws snaps at everything around him. He rushes at the boats with his head. They are propelled before him with vast swiftness and sometimes utterly destroyed. It is a matter of great astonishment that the consideration of the habits of so interesting and in commercial point of view, so important an animal as the sperm whale should have been so entirely neglected or should have excited so little curiosity among the numerous and many of them competent observers that of late years must have possessed the most abundant and most convenient opportunities of witnessing their habitudes. Thomas Beale's History of the Sperm Whale, 1839. The cachalot, sperm whale, is not only better armed than the true whale, Greenland or right whale, in possessing a formidable weapon at either extremity of his body, but also more frequently displays a disposition to employ these weapons offensively and in manner at once so artful, bold, and mischievous as to lead to its being regarded as the most dangerous to attack of all the known species of the whale tribe. Frederick de Bell, Bennett's Whaling Voyage Round the Globe, 1840. October 13. There she blows, was sung out from the masthead. Where away, demanded the captain. Three points off the lee bow, sir. Raise up your wheels. Steady, steady, sir. Masthead ahoy. Do you see the sperm whale now? Aye, aye, sir. A shoal of sperm whales. There she blows. There she breaches. Sing out, sing out every time. Aye, aye, sir. There she blows. There, there, there she blows, blows, blows. How far off? Two miles and a half. Thunder and lightning so near. Call all hands. J. Ross Brown's Etching of a Whaling Cruise, 1846. The whale ship Globe, on board of which vessel occurred the horrid transactions we are about to relate, belonged to the island of Nantucket. Narrative of the Globe Mutiny by Lay and Hussey Survivors, A.D. 1828. Being once pursued by a whale which he had wounded, he parried the assault for some time with a lance, 
but the furious monster at length rushed on the boat, himself and comrades only being preserved by leaping into the water when they saw the onset was inevitable. Missionary Journey of Tyreman and Bennett Nantucket itself, said Mr. Webster, is a very striking and peculiar portion of the national interest. There is a population of eight or nine thousand persons living here in the sea, adding largely every year to the national wealth by the boldest and most persevering industry. Report of Daniel Webster's speech to the U.S. Senate on the application of the erection of a breakwater at Nantucket, 1828. The whale fell directly over him and probably killed him in a moment. The Whale and His Captors, or The Whaleman's Adventures and the Whale's Biography, gathered on the homeward cruise of the Commodore Preble, by Rev. Henry T. Cheever. If you make the least damn bit of noise, replied Samuel, I will send you to hell. Life of Samuel Comstock, the mutineer, by his brother William Comstock, another version of the Whaleship Globe narrative. The voyages of the Dutch and the English to the Northern Ocean in order, if possible, to discover a passage through it to India, though they failed of their main subject, laid open the haunts of the whale. McCulloch's Commercial Dictionary. These things are reciprocal. The ball rebounds only to bound forward again, for now, in laying open the haunts of the whale, the whalemen seem to have indirectly hit upon new clues to that same mystic Northwest Passage, from something unpublished. It is impossible to meet a whale ship on the ocean without being struck by her near appearance. The vessel, under short sail, with lookouts at the mastheads eagerly scanning the wide expanse all around them, has a totally different air from those engaged in regular voyage. Currents and Whaling U.S. X. X. Pedestrians in the vicinity of London and elsewhere may recollect having seen large curved bones set upright in the earth, either to form arches over gateways or entrances to alcoves, and they may perhaps have been told that these were the ribs of whales. Tales of a Whale Voyager to the Arctic Ocean it was not until the boats returned from the pursuit of these whales that the whites saw their ship in bloody possession of the savages enrolled among the crew. Newspaper account of the taking and retaking of the whale ship Hobomack. It is generally well known that out of the crews of whaling vessels, American, few ever return in the ships on board which they departed. Cruise on a whaleboat. Suddenly, a mighty mass emerged from the water and shot up perpendicularly into the air. It was a whale. Miriam Coffin, or The Whale Fisherman. The whale is harpooned, to be sure, but bethink you, how would you manage a powerful, unbroken colt with a mere appliance of rope tied to the root of his tail? A chapter on whaling in Ribs and Trucks. On one occasion, I saw two of these monsters whales, probably male and female, slowly swimming one after the other within less than a stone's throw of the shore of Tierra del Fuego, over which the beech tree extended its branches. Darwin's Voyage of a Naturalist. Stern all, exclaimed the mate. Upon turning his head, he saw the distended jaws of a large sperm whale close to the head of the boat, threatening it with instant destruction. Stern all for your lives! 
Wharton, the whale killer. So be cheery, my lads, let your hearts never fail, while the bold harpooner is striking the whale. Nantucket Song. Oh, the rare old whale, mid storm and gale, in his ocean home will be, and giant in might, where might is right, and king of the boundless sea. Whale Song. Chapter 1. Loomings. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, Whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically not knocking people's hats off, then I count it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean as me. There now is your insular city of the Manhattos. Belted round by wharves as Indian isles by coral reefs commence, surrounds it with her surf. Right and left, the streets take you waterward. Its extreme downtown is the Battery, where that noble mole is washed by waves and cooled by breezes, which a few hours previous were out of sight of land. Look at the crowds of water-gazers there. Circumnambulate the city of a dreamy Sabbath afternoon. Go from Corlear's Hook to Coontee's Slip, and from thence by Whitehall northward. What do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town, stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed in ocean reveries. Some leaning against the spiles, some seated upon the pierheads, some looking over the bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the rigging as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But these are all landsmen of weekdays pent up in lath and plaster, tied to counters, nailed to benches, clinched to desks. How then is this? Are the green fields gone? Why do they look here? But look, here come more crowds, pacing straight for the water and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange, nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in, and there they stand, miles of them, leagues, inlanders all. They come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues north, east, south, and west, yet they all unite here. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compasses of all those ships attract them thither? Once more, say you are in the country. In some high land of lakes, take almost any path you please, and ten to one, it carries you down in a dale and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There is magic in it. 
Let the most absent-minded of men be plunged in his deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallibly lead you to water, if water there be in all that region. Should you ever be athirst in the great American desert? Try this experiment. If your caravan happens to be supplied with a metaphysical professor. Yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded for ever. But here is an artist. He desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest, quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in all the Valley of the Seiko. What is the chief element he employs? There stand his trees, each with a hollow trunk, as if a hermit and a crucifix were within. And here sleeps his meadow, and there sleep his cattle, and from that yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue. But... Through the picture lies thus traced, and through this pine tree shakes down its size like leaves upon the shepherd's head. Yet all were in vain, unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. Go, visit the prairies in June, when all the scores upon scores of miles you wade knee-deep among tiger lilies. What is the one charm wanting? Water. There is not a drop of water there. Were Niagara but a cataract of sand? Would you travel your thousand miles to see it? <laughs> Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to walk Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why upon your first voyage as a passenger did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that you or your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity? and our own brother of Jove. Surely, this is not without meaning. And still deeper, the meaning of that story of Narcissus, who because he could not grasp the tormenting, mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. By that same image, we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life, and this is the key to it all. Now, when I say I am of the habit of going to sea, whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes and begin to be overconscious of my lungs, I do not mean to have inferred that I have ever gone to sea as a passenger. For to go as a passenger, you must needs have a purse. And a purse is but a rag unless you have something in it. Besides, passengers get seasick, grow quarrelsome, don't sleep of nights. Do not enjoy themselves much as a general thing. No, I never go to sea as a passenger. Nor, though I am something of a salt, do I ever go to sea as a commodore, or a captain, or a cook. I abandon the glory and distinction of such offices for those who like them. For my part, I abominate all horrible, respectable toils, trials, tribulations of every kind whatsoever. 
it is quite as much as I can do to take care of myself without taking care of ships, barks, brigs, schooners, and whatnot. As for going as cook, though I confess there is considerable glory in that, a cook being a sort of officer on shipboard, yet somehow I never fancied broiling fowls. Though once broiled, judiciously buttered, and judgmatically salted and peppered, there is no one who will speak more respectfully, nor to say reverentially, of a boiled fowl than I will. It is out of the idolatrous dotings of the old Egyptians upon broiled ibis and roasted river horse that you can see the mummies of those creatures in their huge bakehouses, the pyramids. <laughs> no, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor, right before the mast, plumb down into the forecastle, aloft there to the royal masthead. True. They rather order me about some and make me jump from spar to spar like a grasshopper in a May meadow, and at first this sort of thing is unpleasant enough. It touches one's sense of honor, particularly if you come of an old established family in the land, the Van Resselaers or Randolphs or Hardicanutes. And more than all that, if just previous to putting your hand into the tar pot, you have been lording it up as a county schoolmaster, making the tallest boy stand in awe of you, the transition is a keen one, I assure you, from schoolmaster to a sailor, and requires a strong decoction of Seneca and the Stoics to enable you to grin and bear it, but even this wears off in time. What of it if some old hunks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? What does that indignity amount to, Wade, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? Do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hunks in the, that particular instance? Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right. That everybody else is, one way or another, served in much the same way either in a physical or a metaphysical point of view. That is, and so the universal thump is passed round, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Again, I always go to sea as a sailor, because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay, and there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid. The act of paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable infliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. By being paid, what compares to that? The urbane activity with which a man receives money is really marvelous. Considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills. And that on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven. Ah, how cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. Finally, I always go to sea as a sailor because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in this world, headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern. That is, if you never violate the Pythagorean maxim. So, for the most part, the Commodore on the quarterdeck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes at first, but not so. In much the same way do the commonality lead their leaders in many other things. 
at the same time that their leaders little suspect it. But wherefore it was that after having repeatedly smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage, this the invisible police officer of the fates, who has the constant surveillance of me, and secretly dogs me, and influences me in some unaccountable way, he can better answer than anyone else. And doubtless my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of providence that was drawn up long ago. It came as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. Whaling voyage by one Ishmael. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. Though I cannot tell why it was exactly that those stage managers, the fates, put me down for the shabby part of the whaling voyage where others were set down for magnificent parts in high tragedies and short and easy parts in genteel comedies and jolly parts in farces, though I cannot tell why this was exactly, yet, now that I recall all the circumstances, I think I can see a little into the springs and motives which being cunningly presented to me under various disguises induced me to set about performing the part I did. Besides conjoling me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. Chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such a portentous and mysterious monster roused in all my curiosity. Then the wild and distant seas where he rolled his island bulk, the undeliverable, nameless perils of the whale, there with all the attending marvels of a thousand Patagonian sights and sounds, helped to sway me to my wish. With other men, perhaps such things would not have been inducements, but as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Not ignoring what is good, I am quick to perceive a horror and could still be social with it. Would they let me? Since it is but well to be on friendly terms with all the inmates of a place one lodges in. By reason of these things, then, the whaling voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two, there floated in my inmost soul endless processions of the whale. And midmost of them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air. Chapter 2. The Carpet Bag I stuffed a shirt or two into my old carpet bag, tucked it under my arm, and started for Cape Horn and the Pacific. Quitting the good city of old Manhattan, I arrived duly in New Bedford. It was a Saturday night in December. Much was I disappointed upon learning that the little packet from Nantucket had already sailed, and that no way of reaching that place would offer till the following Monday. As most young candidates for the pains and penalties of whaling stop at this same New Bedford, thence to embark on their voyage, it may as well be related that I, for one, had no idea of so doing. For my mind was made up to sail in no other than a Nantucket craft, because there was a fine, boisterous something about everything connected with that famous old island, which amazingly pleased me. Besides, though New Bedford has of late been gradually monopolizing the business of whaling, and though in this matter poor old Nantucket 
is now much behind her, yet Nantucket was in her great original, the tire of this Carthage, the place where the first dead American whale was stranded. Where else but from Nantucket did those aboriginal whalemen, the redmen, first sally out in canoes to give chase to the leviathan? And where but from Nantucket, too, did that first adventurous little sloop put forth, partly laden with imported cobblestones, so goes the story, to throw at the whales, in order to discover when they were nigh enough to risk a harpoon from the bowsprit? Now, having a night and a day, still and still another night following before me in New Bedford, ere I could embark for my destined port, it became a matter of concernment where I was to eat and sleep meanwhile. It was a very dubious looking, nay, a very dark and dismal night, bitingly cold and cheerless. I knew no one in the place. With anxious grapnels, I had sounded my pocket and only brought up a few pieces of silver. So, wherever you go, Ishmael, said I to myself, as I stood in the middle of a dreary street shouldering my bag and comparing the gloom towards the north with the darkness towards the south, wherever in your wisdom you may conclude to lodge for that night, my dear Ishmael, be sure to inquire the price, and don't be too particular." With halting steps, I paced the streets and passed the sign of the crossed harpoons, but it looked too expensive and jolly there. Further on, from the bright red windows of the Swordfish Inn, there came such fervent rays that it seemed to have melted the packed snow and ice from before the house, for everywhere else the congealed frost lay ten inches thick in a hard, asphaltic pavement. Rather weary for me when I struck my foot against the flinty projections, because from hard, remorseless service the soles of my boots were in a most miserable plight. Too expensive and jolly again, thought I. Pausing one moment to watch the broad glare in the street and hear the sounds of the tinkling glasses within. But go on, Ishmael, said I at last. Don't you hear? Get away from before the door. Your patched boots are stopping the way. So on I went. I, now by instinct, followed the streets that took me waterward, for there, doubtless, were the cheapest, if not the cheeriest inns. Such dreary streets, blocks of blackness, not houses on either hand, and here and there a candle, like a candle moving about in a tomb. At this hour of the night of the last day of the week, that quarter of the town proved all but deserted. But presently, I came to a smoky light proceeding from a low, wide building, the door of which stood invitingly open. It had a careless look, as if it were meant for the uses of the public. So, entering, the first thing I did was to stumble over an ash box in the porch. Ha! thought I, <coughs> as the flying particles almost choked me. Are these the ashes from that destroyed city, Gamora? But the crossed harpoons and the swordfish? This, then, must needs be the sign of the trap. However, I picked myself up, and hearing a loud voice within, pushed on and opened a second interior door. It seemed the great black parliament sitting in Tophet. A hundred black faces turned round in their rows to peer, and beyond a black angel of doom was beating a book in a pulpit. It was a Negro church, and the preacher's text was about the blackness of darkness and the weeping and wailing and teeth gnashing there. Ha! Ishmael muttered I, backing out. Wretched entertainment at the sign of the trap. Moving on, I at last came to a dim sort of light not far from the docks, and heard a forlorn creaking in the air, and, looking up, saw a swinging sign over the door with a white painting upon it, 
faintly representing a tall, straight jet of misty spray, and these words underneath. The Spouter Inn. Peter Coffin. Coffin? Spouter? Rather ominous in that particular connection, thought I. But it is a common name in Nantucket, they say, and I suppose this Peter here is an emigrant from there. As the light looked so dim, and the place from the time looked quiet enough, and the dilapidated little wooden house itself looked as if it might have been carted here from the ruins of some burnt district, and as the swinging sign had a poverty-stricken sort of creak to it, I thought that here was the very spot for cheap lodgings and the best of pea coffee. It was a queer sort of place, a gable-ended old house, one side palsied as it were, leaning over sadly. It stood on a sharp, bleak corner where that tempestuous wind, Euroclydon, kept up a worse howling than ever it did about poor Paul's tossed craft. Euroclydon, nevertheless, is a mighty pleasant zephyr to anyone indoors, with his feet up on the hob, quietly toasting for bed. In judging of that tempestuous wind called Euroclydon, says an old writer, of whose works I possess the only extant copy, it maketh a marvelous difference whether thou lookest out at it from a glass window where the frost is all on the outside, or whether thou observest it from that sashless window where the frost is on both sides, of which the white death is the only glazier. True enough, thought I, as this passage occurred to my mind. Old black letter, thou reasonest well. Yes, these eyes are windows, and this body of mine is the house. What a pity they didn't stop up the chinks and crannies, though, and thrust in a little lint here and there. But it's too late to make any improvements now. The universe is finished, the copestone is on, and the chips were carted off a million years ago. Poor Lazarus there, chattering his teeth against the curbstone for his pillow and shaking off his tatters with his shiverings. He might plug up both ears with rags and put a corn cob in his mouth, and yet that would not keep out the tempestuous Euroclydon. Euroclydon, says old Deves in his red silken wrapper. He had a redder one afterwards. Pooh, pooh, what a fine frosty night. How Orion glitters. What northern lights. Let them talk of their oriental summer climbs of everlasting conservatories. Give me the privilege of making my own summer with my own coals. But what thinks Lazarus? Can he warm his blue hands by holding them up to the grand northern lights? Would not Lazarus rather be in Sumatra than here? Would he not far rather lay him down lengthwise along the line of the equator? Yea, ye gods! Go down to the fiery pit itself in order to keep out this frost. Now, that Lazarus should lie stranded there on the curbstone before the door of Deves, this is more wonderful than that an iceberg should be moored to one of the Moluccas. Yet Deves himself, he too lives like a czar in an ice palace made of frozen size, and being a president of a temperance society, he only drinks the tepid tears of orphans. But no more of this blubbering now. We are going a-wailing, and there is plenty of that yet to come. Let us scrape the ice from our frosted feet and see what sort of place this spouter may be. Chapter 3. The Spouter Inn Entering that gable-ended spouter inn, you find yourself in a wide, low, straggling entry with old-fashioned wainscots, reminding one of the bulwarks of some condemned old craft. On one side, 
hung a very large oil painting, so thoroughly besmoked and in every way defaced that in the unequal cross-lights by which you viewed it, it was only by very diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it and careful inquiry of the neighbors that you could in any way arrive at an understanding of its purpose. Such unaccountable masses of shades and shadows that at first you almost thought some ambitious young artist in the time of the New England hags had endeavored to delineate chaos bewitched. But by dint of much and earnest contemplation and oft-repeated ponderings, and especially by throwing open the little window toward the back of the entry, you at last come to the conclusion that such an idea, however wild, might not be altogether unwarranted. But what most puzzled and confounded you was a long, limber, portentous, black mass of something hovering in the center of the picture over three blue, dim, perpendicular lines floating in a nameless yeast. A boggy, soggy, squitchy picture, truly. Enough to drive a nervous man distracted. Yet, was there a sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable sublimity about it that fairly froze you to it, till you involuntarily took an oath within yourself to find out what that marvelous painting meant? Ever and anon, a bright, but alas, deceptive idea would dart you through. It's the Black Sea in a Midnight Gale. It's the unnatural combat of the four primal elements. It's a blasted heath. It's a hyperborean winter scene. It's the breaking up of the ice-bound stream of time. But at last, all these fancies yielded to that one portentous something in the picture's midst. That. Once found out, and all the rest were plain. But stop. Does it not bear a faint resemblance to a gigantic fish, even the great Leviathan himself? In fact, the artist's desire seemed this, a final theory of my own, partly based upon the aggregated opinions of many aged persons with whom I conversed upon the subject. The picture represents a Cape Horner in a great hurricane, the half-foundered ship weltering there with its three dismantled masts alone visible, and an exasperated whale purposing to spring clear over the craft is in the enormous act of impaling himself upon the three mastheads. The opposite wall of this entry was hung all over with a heathenish array of monstrous clubs and spears. Some were thickly set with glittering teeth resembling ivory saws. Others were tufted with knots of human hair, and one was sickle-shaped, with a vast handle sweeping round like the segment made in the new-mown grass by a long-armed mower. You shuddered as you gazed, and wondered what monstrous cannibal and savage could ever have gone a death harvesting by such hacking, horrifying implement. Mixed with these were rusty old whaling lances and harpoons all broken and deformed. Some were storied weapons. With this, once long ago, now wildly elbowed, fifty years ago did Nathan Swain kill fifteen whales between a sunrise and a sunset. And that harpoon, so like a corkscrew now, was flung in Javan seas and run away with by a whale years afterwards slain off of Cape Blanco. The original iron entered nigh the tail and, like a restless needle sojourning in the body of a man, traveled full forty feet and at last was found embedded in the hump. 
Crossing this dusky entry and on through yon low-arched way, cut through what in old times must have been a great central chimney with fireplaces all round, you enter the public room. A still duskier place is this, with such low, ponderous beams above and such old, wrinkled planks beneath that you would almost fancy you trod some old craft's cockpits, especially of such a howling night when this corner-anchored old ark rocked so furiously. On one side stood a long, low, shelf-like table covered with cracked glass cases filled with dusty rarities gathered from this wide world's remotest nooks. Projecting from the further angle of the room stands a dark-looking den, the bar, a rude attempt at a right whale's head. Be that how it may, there stands the vast arced bone of the whale's jaw, so wide a coach might almost drive beneath it. Within are shabby shelves ranged round with old decanters, bottles, flasks, and in those jaws of swift destruction, like another cursed Jonah, by which name indeed they called him, bustles a little withered old man, who for their money clearly sells the sailors, deliriums, and death. Abominable are the tumblers into which he pours his poison, though true cylinders without, within, the villainous green goggling glasses deceitfully tapered downwards to a cheating bottom. Parallel meridians rudely pecked into the glass surrounded these footpads goblets. Fill to this mark, and your charge is but a penny. To this, a penny more. And so on to the full glass, the Cape Horn measure, which you may gulp down for a shilling. Upon entering the place, I found a number of young seamen gathered about a table examining by a dim light diverse specimens of scrimshander. I sought the landlord, and telling him I desired to be accommodated with a room, received for answer that his house was full, not a bed unoccupied. But avast, he added, tapping his forehead. You hain't no objections to sharing a harpooner's blanket, have ye? I suppose you are going a-whaling, so you'd better get used to that sort of a thing. I told him that I never liked to sleep two in a bed, that if I should ever do so, it would depend upon who the harpooner might be, and that if he, the landlord, really had no other place to put me and the harpooner was not decidedly objectionable, why, rather than wander further about a strange town on so bitter a night, I would put up with half of any decent man's blanket. I thought so. All right, take a seat. Supper? You want supper? Supper will be ready directly. I sat down on an old wooden settle, carved all over like a bench on the battery. At one end, a ruminating tar was still further adorning it with his jackknife, stooping over and diligently working away at the space between his legs. He was trying his hand at a ship under full sail, but he didn't make much headway, I thought. At last, some four or five of us were summoned to our meal in an adjoining room. It was cold as Iceland. No fire at all. The landlord said he couldn't afford it. Nothing but two dismal tallow candles, each in a winding sheet. We were fain to button up our monkey jackets and hold to our lips cups of scalding tea with our half-frozen fingers. But the fare was of the most substantial kind. Not only meat and potatoes, but dumplings. Good heavens! Dumplings for supper! One young fellow in a green box coat addressed himself to these dumplings in a most direful manner. My boy, said the landlord, you'll have a nightmare to a dead certainty. Landlord, I whispered, that ain't the harpooner, is it? 
Oh, no, said he, looking sort of diabolically funny. The harpooner is a dark complexion chap. He never eats dumplings. He don't. He eats nothing but steaks, and he likes them rare. The devil he does, says I. Where is that harpooner? Is he here? He'll be here afore long, was the answer. I could not help it, but I began to feel suspicious of this dark-complexioned harpooner. At any rate, I made up my mind that if it so turned out that we should sleep together, he must undress and get into bed before I did. Supper over, the company went back to the barroom, where, knowing not what else to do with myself, I resolved to spend the rest of the evening as a looker-on. Presently, a rioting noise was heard without. Starting up, the landlord cried, That's the Grampus crew. I seed her reporting in the offing this morning, a three years voyage and a full ship. Hurrah, boys! Now we'll have the latest news from the Fijis. A tramping of sea boots was heard in the entry. The door was flung open and in rolled a wild set of mariners enough. Enveloped in their shaggy watch coats and with their heads muffled in woolen comforters, all be darned and ragged with their beards stiff with icicles, they seemed an eruption of bears from Labrador. They had just landed from their boat and this was the first house they entered. No wonder, then, that they made a straight wake for the whale's mouth, <laughs> the bar, when the wrinkled little old Jonah, then officiating, soon poured them out brimmers all round. One complained of a bad cold in his head, upon which Jonah mixed him a pitch-like potion of gin and molasses, which he swore was a sovereign cure for all colds and catars whatsoever, never mind how long-standing or whether caught off the coast of Labrador or on the weather side of an ice island. The liquor soon mounted into their heads, as it generally does, even with the errantest toppers newly landed from the sea, and they began capering about most obstreperously. I observed, however, that one of them seemed to hold somewhat aloof, and though he seemed desirous not to spoil the hilarity of his shipmates by his own sober face, yet upon the whole he refrained from making as much noise as the rest. This man interested me at once, and since the sea gods had ordained that he should soon become my shipmate, though but a sleeping partner one, as far as this narrative is concerned, I will here venture upon a little description of him. He stood a full six feet in height, with noble shoulders and a chest like a coffer dam. I have seldom seen such brawn in a man. His face was deeply brown and burnt, making his white teeth dazzling by the contrast, while in the deep shadows of his eyes floated some reminiscences that did not seem to give him much joy. His voice at once announced that he was a th southerner, and from his fine stature I thought he must be one of those tall mountaineers from the Alleghenian Ridge in Virginia. When the revelry of his companions had mounted to its height, this man slipped away unobserved, and I saw no more of him till he became my comrade on the sea. In a few minutes, however, he was missed by his shipmates, and being, it seems, for some reason, a huge favorite with them, they raised a cry of, A Bulkington! A Bulkington! Where's Bulkington? And darted out of the house in pursuit of him. It was now almost nine o'clock, and the room seemed almost supernaturally quiet after these orgies. I began to congratulate myself upon a little plan that had occurred to me just previous to the entrance of the seamen. No man prefers to sleep to in a bed. 
In fact, you would a good deal rather not sleep with your own brother. I do not know how it is, but people like to be private when they are sleeping. And when it comes to sleeping with an unknown stranger in a strange inn in a strange town and what stra- and that stranger a harpooner, then your objections indefinitely multiply. Nor was there any earthly reason why I, as a sailor, should sleep two in a bed more than anybody else, for sailors no more sleep two in a bed at sea than bachelor kings do ashore. To be sure, they all sleep together in one apartment, but you have your own hammock and cover yourself with your own blanket and sleep in your own skin. The more I pondered over this harpooner, the more I abominated the thought of sleeping with him. It was fair to presume that being a harpooner, his linen, or woolen, as the case might be, would not be of the tidiest, certainly none of the finest. I began to twitch all over. Besides, it was getting late, and my decent harpooner ought to be home and going bedwards. Suppose now he should tumble in upon me at midnight. How could I tell from what vile hole he had been coming? Landlord, I've changed my mind about that harpooner. I shan't sleep with him. I'll try the bench here. Just as you please. I'm sorry I can't spare you a tablecloth for a mattress. It's a plain, plowy, rough board here. Feeling the knots and notches. But wait a bit, Scrimshander. I've got a carpenter's plane there in the bar. Wait, I say. I'll make you snug enough. So saying, he procured the plane, and with his old silk handkerchief first dusting the bench vigorously, set to planing away at my bed, the while grinning like an ape. The shavings flew right and left, till at last the plain iron came bump against an indestructible knot. The landlord was near spraining his wrist, and I told him for heaven's sake to quit. The bed was soft enough to suit me, and I did not know how all the planing in the world could make eider down of a pine plank. So gathering up the shavings with another grin and throwing them into the great stove in the middle of the room, he went about his business and left me in a brown study. I now took the measure of the bench and found that it was a foot too short, but that could be mended with a chair. But it was a foot too narrow, and the other bench in the room was about four inches higher than the plain one, so there was no yoking them. I then placed the first bench lengthwise along the only clear space against the wall, leaving a little interval between for my back to settle down in. But I soon found that there came such a draft of cold air over me from under the sill of the window that this plan would never do at all, especially as another current from the rickety door met the one from the window, and both together formed a series of small whirlwinds in the immediate vicinity of the spot where I had sought to spend the night. The devil fetch that harpooner, thought I, but stop. Couldn't I steal a march on him, bolt his door inside, and jump into his bed, not to be wakened by the most violent knockings? It seemed no bad idea, but upon second thoughts I dismissed it, for who could tell but what the next morning, so soon as I popped out of the room, the harpooner might be standing in the entry, all ready to knock me down. Still, looking round me again and seeing no possible chance of spending a sufferable night unless in some other person's bed, I began to think that after all I might be cherishing unwarranted prejudices against this unknown harpooner. Thinks I, I'll wait a while, he must be dropping in before long. I'll have a good look at him then, and perhaps we may become jolly good bedfellows after all. There's no telling. But though the other boarders kept coming in by ones, twos, and threes, and going to bed, yet no sign of my harpooner. Landlord, 
Says I, what sort of chap is he? Does he always keep such late hours? It was now hard upon 12 o'clock. The landlord chuckled again with his lean chuckle and seemed to be mightily tickled at something beyond my comprehension. No, he answered. Generally, he's an early bird. Early to bed and early to rise. Yes, he's the bird what catches the worm. But tonight he went out a-peddling, you see, and I don't see what on earth keeps him so late unless maybe he can't sell his head. Can't sell his head? What sort of a bamboozly story is it you're telling me? Getting into a towering rage. Do you pretend to say, landlord, that this harpooner is actually engaged this blessed Saturday night, or rather Sunday morning, in peddling his head around this town? That's precisely it, said the landlord, and I told him he couldn't sell it here. The market's overstocked. With what? shouted I. With heads, to be sure. Ain't there too many heads in the world? I'll tell you what it is, landlord, said I quite calmly. You'd better stop spinning that yarn to me. I'm not green. Maybe not, taking out a stick and whittling a toothpick. But I rather guess you're done brown if that air harpooner hears you a slander in his head. I'll break it for him, said I, now flying into a passion again at this unaccountable farrago of the landlord's. It's broke already, says he. Broke, said I. Broke, do you mean? Certain. And that's the very reason he can't sell it, I guess. Landlord, said I, going up to him as cool as Mr. Hecla in a snowstorm. Landlord, stop whittling. You and I must understand one another, and that too without delay. I come to your house, and I want a bed, and you tell me you can only give me half of one. Then the other half belongs to a certain harpooner, and about this harpooner, who I must not yet have seen, you persist in telling me the most mystifying and exasperating stories, tending to beget in me an uncomfortable feeling towards the man with whom you designed for my bedfellow, a sort of connection landlord which is an intimate and confidential one in the highest degree i now demand that you to speak out and tell me who and what this harpooner is and whether i shall be in all respects safe to spend the night with him and in the first place you will be so good as to unsay that story about selling his head which if true i take to be good evidence that this harpooner is stark mad and I've no idea of sleeping with a madman, and you, sir, you, I mean, landlord, you, sir, by trying to induce me to do so knowingly, would thereby render yourself liable to a criminal prosecution. Wow, said the landlord, fetching a long breath. That's a pretty long sermon for a chap that rips a little now and then, but be easy, be easy. This here harpooner I've been telling you of has just arrived from the South Seas, where he bought up a lot of balmed New Zealand heads, great curios, you know, and he sold them all on but one. And that one he's a-trying to sell tonight, because tomorrow's Sunday, and it would not do to be selling human heads about the streets when folks is going to churches. He wanted to last Sunday, but I stopped him just as he was going out the door with four heads strung on a string for all the earth like a string of onions. This account cleared up the otherwise unaccountable mystery and showed that the landlord, after all, had had no idea of fooling me, but at the same time what 
could I think of a harpooner who stayed out of a Saturday night clean into the Holy Sabbath, engaged in such a cannibal business as selling the heads of dead idolaters? Depend upon it, landlord. That harpooner is a dangerous man. He pays regular, said the rejoinder. But come, it's getting dreadful late. You'd better be turning flukes. It's a nice bed. Sal and me slept in there plenty of night when we were spliced. There's plenty of room for two to kick about in that bed. It's an almighty big bed, that. Why, afore we gave it up, Sal used to put our Sam and little Johnny at the foot of it. But I got a-dreamin' and a-sprawlin' about one night, and somehow Sam got pitched on the floor and came near breaking his arm. Out of that, Sal wouldn't have it. Come along here. I'll give you a glim and a jiffy. And so saying, he lighted a candle and held it towards me, offering to lead the way. But I stood, irresolute. When I looked at the clock in the corner, he exclaimed, I vum, it's Sunday. You won't see that harpooner tonight. He's come to anchor somewhere. Come along, then. Do come. Won't you come? I considered the matter a moment, and then up the stairs we went. And I was ushered into a small room, cold as a clam, and furnished, sure enough, with a prodigious bed, almost big enough indeed for any four harpooners to sleep abreast. There, said the landlord, placing the candle on a crazy old sea chest that did double duty as a washstand and center table. There, make yourself comfortable now, and good night to ye. I turned round from eyeing the bed, but he had disappeared. Folding back the center pane, I stooped over the bed. Though none of the most elegant, it yet stood the scrutiny tolerably well. I then glanced around the room, and besides the bedstead, the center table, I could see no other furniture belonging to the place but a rude shelf, the four walls, and a papered fireboard representing a man striking a whale. Of things not properly belonging to the room, there was a hammock lashed up, and thrown upon the floor in one corner also a large seaman's bag containing the harpooner's wardrobe, no doubt in lieu of a land trunk. Likewise was a parcel of outlandish bone fish hooks on a shelf over the fireplace and a tall harpoon standing at the head of the bed. But what is this on the chest? I took it up and held it close to the light and felt it and smelt it and tried every possible way to arrive at some satisfactory conclusion concerning it. I can compare it to nothing but a large doormat ornamented at the edges with little tinkling things, something like the stained porcupine quills round an Indian moccasin. There was a hole or a slit in the middle of this mat, as you see in some South American ponchos, but could it be possible that any sober harpooner would get into a doormat and parade the streets of any Christian town in that sort of guise? I put it on to try it, and it weighed me down like a hamper, being uncomfortably shaggy and thick. I thought a little damp, and as though this mysterious harpooner had been wearing it of a rainy day. I went up in it to a bit of glass stuck against the wall, and I never saw such a sight in my life. I tore myself out of it in such a hurry that I gave myself a kink in the neck. I sat down on the side of the bed and commenced thinking about this head-peddling harpooner and his doormat. After thinking some time on the bedside, I got up and took off my monkey jacket and then stood in the middle of the room thinking. I then took off my coat and thought a little more in my shirt sleeves, but... Beginning to feel cold now, half undressed as I was, and remembering what the landlord had said about the harpooners not coming home at all that night, it being so very late, I made no more ado, but jumped out of my pantaloons and boots, and then blowing out the light, tumbled into bed, and commended myself to the care of heaven.
Whether that mattress was stuffed with corn cobs or broken crockery, there is no telling, but I rolled about a good deal and could not sleep for a long time. At last I slid off into a light doze and had pretty nearly made a good offing toward the land of Nod when I heard a heavy footfall in the passage and saw a glimmer of light come into the room from under the door. Lord save me, thinks I. That must be the harpooner, the infernal head peddler. But I lay perfectly still and resolved not to say a word till spoken to, holding a light in one hand and that identical New Zealander head in the other, the stranger entered the room and without looking toward the bed, placed his candle a good way off from me on the floor in the corner and then began working away at the knotted cords of the large bag I before spoke of as being in the room. I was all eagerness to see his face, but he kept it averted for some time while employed in unlacing the bag's mouth. This accomplished, however, he turned round when, Good heavens! What a sight! Such a face! It was of a dark purplish-yellow color, here and there stuck over with large blackish-looking squares. Yes, it's just as I thought. He's a terrible bedfellow. He's been in a fight, got dreadfully cut, and here he is just from the surgeon. But at that moment he chanced to turn his face so towards the light, and that I plainly saw they could not be sticking plasters at all, those black squares on his cheeks. They were stains of some sort. At first I knew not what to make of this, but soon an inkling of the truth occurred to me. I remembered a story of a whaleman, a whaleman, too, who, falling among the cannibals, had been tattooed by them. I concluded that this harpooner, in the course of his dis distant voyages must have met with a similar adventure. And what is it, thought I, after all? It's only his outside. A man can be honest in any sort of skin. But then, what to make of his unearthly complexion? That part of it, I mean, lying round about, and completely independent of the squares of tattooing. To be sure, it might be nothing but a good coat of tropical tanning, but... I never heard of a hot sun's tanning a white man into a purplish-yellow one. However, I had never been in the South Seas, and perhaps the sun there produced these extraordinary effects upon the skin. Now, while all these ideas were passing through me like lightning, the harpooner never noticed me at all. But after some difficulty having opened his bag, he commenced fumbling with it and presently pulled out a sort of tomahawk and a sealskin wallet with the hair on. Placing these on the old chest in the middle of the room, he then took the New Zealand head, a ghastly thing enough, and crammed it down into the bag. He now took off his hat, a new beaver hat, when I came nigh singing out with fresh surprise. There was no hair on his head, none to speak of at least, nothing but a small scalp knot twisted up on his forehead. His bald, purplish head now looked for all the world like a mildewed skull. Had not the stranger stood before me and the door, I would have bolted out of it quicker than I ever bolted a dinner. Even as it was, I thought something of slipping out the window, but it was the second floor back. I am no coward, but what to make of this head-peddling purple rascal altogether passed my comprehension. Ignorance is the parent of fear. And being completely nonplussed and confounded about the stranger, I confess I was now as much afraid of him as if it was the devil himself who had thus broken into my room in the dead of night. In fact, I was so afraid of him that I was not game enough just then to address him and demand a satisfactory answer concerning what seemed inexplicable in him. Meanwhile, he continued the business of undressing and at last showed his chest and arms. 
as I live. These were covered parts of him, were checkered with the same squares as his face. His back, too, was all over the same dark squares. He seemed to have been in a 30 years war and just escaped from it with a sticking plaster shirt. Still more, his very legs were marked as if a parcel of dark green frogs were running up the trunks of young palms. It was now quite plain that he must be some abominable savage or other shipped aboard of a whaleman in the South Seas and so landed in this Christian country. I quaked to think of it. A peddler of heads, too. Perhaps the heads of his own brothers. He might take a fancy to mine. Heavens, look at that tomahawk! But there was no time for shuddering, for now the savage went about something that completely fascinated my attention and convinced me that he must indeed be a heathen. Going to his heavy grago, or rapal, or dreadnought, which he had previously hung on a chair, he fumbled in the pockets and pr produced, at length, a curious little deformed image with a hunch in its back and exactly the color of a three-days-old Congo baby. Remembering the embalmed head, at first I almost thought that this black mannequin was a real baby preserved in some similar manner, but seeing that it was not at all limber and that it glistened a good deal like polished ebony, I concluded that it must be nothing but a wooden idol, which indeed it proved to be. For now, the savage goes up to the empty fireplace and, removing the papered fireboard, sets up this little hunchbacked image like a tenpin between the andrians. The chimney jams and all the bricks inside were very sooty, so that I thought this fireplace made a very appropriate little shrine or chapel for his Congo idol. I now screwed my eyes hard towards the half-hidden image, feeling but ill at ease meantime, to see what was next to the fellow. First, he takes about a double handful of shavings out of his Grego pocket and places them carefully before the idol. Then laying a bit of ship biscuit on top and applying the flame from the lamp, he kindled the shavings into a sacrificial blaze. Presently, after many hasty snatches into the fire and still hastier withdrawals of his fingers, whereby he seemed to have scorched them badly, he at last succeeded in drawing out the biscuit. Then, blowing off the heat and ashes a little, he made a polite offer of it to the little negro. But the little devil did not seem to fancy such a dry sort of fare at all. He never moved his lips. All these strange antics were accompanied by still stranger guttural noises from the devotee, who seemed to be praying in a sing-song or else singing some pagan psalmody or other, during which his face twitched about in a most unnatural manner. At last, ext extinguishing the fire, he took the idol up very unceremoniously and bagged it again in his grego pocket as carelessly as if he were a sportsman bagging a dead woodcock. All these queer proceedings increased my uncomfortableness, and seeing him now exhibiting strong symptoms of concluding his business operations and jumping into bed with me, I thought it was high time, now or never, before the light had been put out to break the spell in which I had so long been bound. But the interval I spent in deliberating what to say was a fatal one. Taking up his tomahawk from the table, he examined the head of it for an instant, and then holding it to the light with his mouth at the handle, he puffed out great clouds of tobacco smoke. The next moment the light was extinguished, and this wild cannibal, tomahawk between his teeth, sprang into bed with me. I sang out. I could not help it now. And giving a sudden grunt of astonishment, he began feeling me. Stammering out something, I knew not what, I rolled away from him against the wall and then conjured him, whoever or whatever he might be, to keep quiet and let me get up and light the lamp again. But his guttural responses satisfied me at once that he but ill comprehended my meaning. Who de devil you? he said at last. You no speaky, damn me, I killy. 
and so saying, the lighted tomahawk began flourishing about me in the dark. Landlord, for God's sake, Peter Coffin, shouted I. Landlord, watch, Coffin, angels, save me. Speaky, telly me who he be, or damn me, I kill he. Again growled the cannibal, with it while his horrid flourishings of the tomahawk scattered the hot tobacco ashes about me till I thought my linen would get on fire. But thank heaven, at that moment, the landlord came into the room, light in hand, and leaping from the bed, I ran to him. Don't be afraid now, said he, grinning again. Queequeg here wouldn't harm a hair of your head. Stop your grinning, shouted I, and why didn't you tell me that this infernal harpooner was a cannibal? I thought you'd know it. Didn't I tell you he was peddling heads around town? But turn flukes again and go to sleep. Queequeg, look here. You sabby me, I sabby. You, this man, sleepy you, you sabby. Me savvy plenty, grunted Queequeg, puffing away at his pipe and getting up in bed. You giddy in, he added, motioning to me with his tomahawk and throwing the clothes to one side. He really did this in not only a civil, but a really kind and charitable way. I stood looking at him a moment. For all his tattooings, he was on the whole a clean, comely-looking cannibal. What's all this fuss I've been making about? I thought to myself. The man's a human being, just as I am. He has just as much reason to fear me as I have to be afraid of him. Better sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. Landlord, said I, tell him to stash his tomahawk there, or pipe, or whatever you call it. Tell him to stop smoking. In short, I will turn in with him, but I don't fancy having a man smoking in bed with me. It's dangerous. Besides, I ain't insured. <laughs> this being told to Queequeg, he at once complied and again politely motioned me to get into bed, rolling over to one side as much to say, I won't touch a leg of ye. Good night, landlord, said I. You may go. I turned in and never slept better in my life. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.